Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. What is the most valuable part of our life? Is it our family, our faith, our money? What is the one thing about this life that we can't live without? We explored these questions this past week at The Gathering and wondered together what pieces of this life hold the highest value. The band shared songs from Kings of Leon, John Mayer, Will Reagan, and more. Let's have a listen.
I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know, anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Anybody here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> Some of you are trying, you're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking. Start slow. Hands in the pockets, little elbow flap. You're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. We got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. <laughs> Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. <laughs> and when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go, there's your big three. You're set. <laughs> you're a pro. On. Good morning. It's good to be together today. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I need to admit something to you. Uh, I spell, oh, come on. Is this going to work for me? It's not, is it? Just a second. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Turn it off. Turn it on. There we go. All right, so I spend way too much time thinking about aliens. Come on, still not working here. Great, I'm sick and the technology's not gonna work. Fantastic, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do it the old fashioned way. Just unplug and then go from there. So I spend way too much time thinking about aliens. Uh, this was working, come on. This is like my worst nightmare. Actually, it's Mike's worst nightmare. Um, there we go. Let's try that. Um, let me start over. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be together today. Uh, so I need to admit something, right? Um, I spend way too much time thinking about aliens. Uh, actually, and perhaps this is the actual confession, I spend way too much time scrolling through Reddit. 
Uh, I don't use Instagram or Twitter, and I only use Facebook uh, for its marketplace, but I can waste a day on Reddit pretty easily without even thinking about it. At one point in this morning, I was going to show you my, my screen time recordings, but um, that's just too embarrassing. So uh, I've even had to put a monitor on my phone, like an old-fashioned accountability partner, to make sure that I, I stop at a, after a certain amount of time. And that time is two hours. I still dedicate two hours of my day to Reddit. Um, so I need some accountability in that. Anyway, in my doom scrolling, I have jumped down the UFO rabbit hole way more than what I'm comfortable with. Now, <clears throat> feet to the fire, I don't know if I can provide a definitive answer to the question of extraterrestrial life or even what I think about aliens. And admittedly, there's a lot of compelling evidence, right? I heard someone once say, and this is kind of, kind of how I try to think about it, is either one, there are no aliens, two, aliens do exist, but they've yet to find us, or we have not found them, or three, aliens do exist, and they have found Earth, and they have determined that there is no intelligent life here on this planet. I'm curious, you know, I want to know. There's like just enough evidence out there to not quite disprove it, in fact, there seems to be a lot of evidence to prove it. At least that's what Sasquatch Days 420 seems to think. Um, he also has a lot of really compelling evidence about the Earth being flat as well. But that's another talk for another time. Um, for everyone making an argument, sharing video evidence of a UFO or an alien encounter, there's dozens of people in the comments section uh, who are skeptical, saying like, oh, that's just an owl or a weather balloon, or a satellite. And so for every believer, there seems to be a non-believer. And the more I lurk, and the deeper that I travel into the troll caves of these message boards, the more I realize that believers and skeptics are searching for the same thing. And that is an answer, right? They want proof that what they understand to be true is actually true. And is there anything more relatable than that. We want to know and we want to be affirmed that what we know is true, right? Whether it's aliens or Bigfoot or the shape of our planet, one's opinions, no matter how extreme, they're fundamentally rooted in the same search for truth. We want answers. And we want answers because answers shape our lives and the decisions that we make so that we may figure out what our life is supposed to mean. Answers give our life meaning. There's a concept in modern philosophy uh, known as creatio ex nihilo. Uh, it's a Latin phrase that translates creating something out of nothing. And for those of you who are married in the audience, you'll be very familiar with this concept. Um, the philosopher Peter Rollins says this about the idea creatio ex nihilo. It is natural for us to think that our present discontent rises as a result of something we currently do not have. We imagine there might be a way of abolishing the feeling if only we'd have the money, fame, job, or health that currently evades us. But people from all walks of life seem to experience the same kind of dissatisfaction that we do, even when they have the very things we believe would make our lives whole. Rollins here is referring to this notion of creatio ex nihilo, saying that each of us has a void in our life, a gap in our soul, and that gap creates a vacuum in search of something that we will fill, that will fill the meaninglessness of our lives. 
This void is a, it's a universal condition of humanity, and everyone eventually sets forth on a journey to discover the secret ingredient to fill it. Peter Rollins goes on to say, um, it may be a success, or good looks, money, Jesus, a partner, or even stamp collecting. It's whatever we act towards as if it were the thing that would rid us of our emptiness. I don't know about you, but I find this an incredibly relatable concept. It fuels my curiosity for aliens, and it drives my love of history and philosophy and theology. I sense a void in me, right? A natural emptiness that's asking, what is all of this for? And perhaps you may be wondering the same thing. So this morning, I want to explore a very similar story from the Bible and ask that question, what is all of this for? Moses went to the mountain and God spoke unto him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. What? Nothing, I punished you, forget it. Oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these fifteen... Ten! Ten commandments for all to obey! Yeah, you know, they just don't make them like Mel Brooks anymore, do they? Uh, I love that little oi at the end there. It makes, it makes me wonder what those five commandments are. One should be thou shall not scroll on Reddit, probably. Um, so I'm going to move forward with the assumption that, uh, that we might have at least an elementary understanding of the Ten Commandments and the story uh, that brought these about. Um, and they, as these ten laws, these ten commandments, these ten rules, if you will, they still play incredibly fundamental role in our society. So here they are, just really quickly, we'll go through them. Uh, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Thou shall not make any idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And thou shall not covet. These are the original 10 laws and they serve as the foundation of our Christian morality. But of course, there is certainly some context that we have to explore, at least I feel the need to explore. So um, if you'll bear with me, strap into the roller coaster, we're gonna go back about 6,000 years to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has led his people into the wilderness after being freed from slavery in Egypt. And they've crossed the Red Sea and they've wandered their way to the base of this mountain in the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai. This is a really interesting moment in the Jewish exodus. It's the, okay, now what moment, right? We left Egypt, and there's no longer any threat of, any, of people chasing after us to take us back. 
We can't go back, but what does moving forward look like? So Moses climbs the mountain, and he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days is a long time, right? That's a, that's a long time to be gone, especially if you're living in a desert without any kind of infrastructure. Some predictions prediction suggest that there were nearly 2 million Hebrew slaves that were freed from Egypt. And to put that into context, that's roughly the equivalent of the entire population of Nebraska, right? Except there's no grocery stores, there's no running water, there's no sanitation. Just 2 million people living in tents at the base of a mountain where they're without a leader and without a government and really without anywhere to go. Imagine yourself in that scene. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of these Hebrew people. Your leader has gone off by himself, and there's no way to communicate with him. I think I would start to get a little restless. Uh, maybe you would too. Even if, even if they were not at the heart of the Middle Eastern desert, food would probably become scarce. Two million people scavenging and hunting. A food source would diminish pretty, pretty quickly. This is a creatio ex nihilo moment in the Bible. The absence of Moses has left a void, and that void is beginning to feel very real and tangible. They're wandering without direction, confused about what is to come. And so these two million Hebrew uh, freed slaves, they turn to another one of their leaders in their tribe by the name of Aaron. And the Bible says this in Exodus chapter 32. When the people realized that Moses was take, taking forever to come down off the mountain, they rallied around Aaron and said, do something, make gods for us who will lead us. That Moses, the man who got us out of Egypt, who knows what happened to him. So Aaron instructs the Hebrews to collect all the gold that they can find in their camp. And they, they bring it all together and they melt it down. And the Bible says they construct a golden calf. They make an idol. But not just any idol. They make a calf. And this is a really important detail in the story. So let's not skip over it. The Bible says that the Hebrew nation had been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. That's nearly twice as long as America has been an established country. And so we have to imagine that over those four centuries, nearly 25 generations of people, that they would have been steeped in Egyptian culture and religion. And it would have taken an incredible amount of effort to avoid it. And in Egypt, there's not just one god. Egypt has a polytheistic religion, and it's believed by experts that they had nearly 2,000 different deities that they would worship. They all had their own forms and altars uh, and set of rules for how you worship this god. Within those 2,000 separate gods, there are eight that take on the form of a bull or a cow, and one of those eight is the goddess Hesat. Hesat is understood to be the offspring or the manifestation of the goddess Hathor, or also known as the calf of Hathor. And it was believed by the Egyptian people that Hesat represented purity, and the milk that she produced was meant to give life to humanity. So let's put all the pieces together. Moses has led them out of Egypt. He's given them instructions for how to live, and then Moses disappears, right? He's not answering any of his texts. It's the first ghosting in the history of humans. Right? No one knows when he's coming back. And as day after day goes by, food sources are becoming scarce. Watering holes are running dry and becoming contaminated. And faith in their mission to the promised land is beginning to fall apart. This is a people without. 
right? It's a people without a country, without a leader, and without any direction for what to do next. They have become an ex nihilo community. <clears throat> so they return to what they know. They begin to long for a life that was, right? Yes, it was an enslaved life, but at least they had food and shelter and purpose. Remember, these were the people who helped the aliens build the pyramids, right? They were incredibly valuable to the Egyptian community. They had worth and they had meaning in Egypt. Yes, it was slavery, but it was still something that could give their life meaning. But now they have Nilo, right? They have nothing. So they turn to Hasat, which is a god that is supposed to give life to humanity, right? These people, they wanted to live. And I find myself having an incredible amount of empathy for these people. Not because I believe that what they were doing was righteous or noble or healthy even, but because I think I would have done the same thing. In fact, I know it's what I would have done because I do it every day, right? Like, there's not a day that goes by where I couldn't be found guilty of breaking that first commandment. Because when things get out of control, when the void takes over, I fill it with any number of gods to try to make sense of it. It's the same motive that drives my interest in aliens and golf and politics. I want to desperately to know and not just feel that my life has meaning and purpose. And it's why the first commandment is first. It's because it's simply human nature, right? I don't have a murdering problem, but I do create other gods and form idols around them in an attempt to make sense of it all. My life is full of idols that I build and worship to give my life meaning. Idolatry, it serves us, right? We create endless varieties of somethings to fill the nothings that can feel so unavoidable. So much so that ironically, the nothing begins to feel like everything. So we create somethings to fill the meaningless nothing of our lives and then serve that something in the hopes that it will serve us, that it will give us something in return. Idols make life feel more safe, more comfortable, and more predictable, but they also separate us from the meaning that the God of the universe has designed for us. It's a beautiful armor, 
makes for the heaviest sword Like punching underwater You never can hit what you're trying for Some need the exhibition Some have to know they tried It's the chemical weapon for the war That's raging on inside Oh, everyone believes From emptiness to everything I've had uh, quite a few conversations about this topic this week. I asked uh, probably a dozen different people what comes to mind when they think of idolatry. And almost everyone brought up this story of the golden calf. Um, or I heard things referenced about you know, the gods of the past, some thought of Baphomet or the occult images that we associate with Satan or the Antichrist. But common themes, the common themes, it was always associated with something that's way beyond our own cultural boundaries or what we would find allowable in our own lives, right? Examples where they were distant right? and they were not self-reflective. When we think of idolatry, it's always about something someone else is worshiping. However, idolatry is much more present than that because at the heart of idolatry, it's a misprioritization of our values. It's rarely making something bad into something good. It's actually usually making something good into something God. Adam and Eve couldn't choose something bad to worship. There wasn't something bad in the Garden of Eden, right? But they still committed adultery. How? They made something good, right? This knowledge of good and evil into their first priority. If we just knew the answer then. And what is, it, what is this then, then, right? That then we wouldn't have to trust in God's goodness for our meaning and our survival and our security. A few weeks ago, Mike challenged us by asking, 
what are you wrong about right now? And it's fairly easy to look in the past, right, and see moments where we made mistakes or miscalculations or even opinions that we once had that we no longer think. But right now in this moment, is there anything that you believe that you are wrong about? Right? Is there any opinion or truth that you're holding on to that you know that is objectively false? The answer is no, there's nothing. If you're like me anyway, right? There is nothing you believe that you are wrong about because we would be foolish to believe something that we know is objectively false. I believe I'm right and I act accordingly. So in my own self-reflection, I want to highlight four of the most apparent and consistent ways that I break that first commandment, the, the most consistent ways that I try to fill the void in my life. Now, this is not an exclusive list, right? It's just four, not 40, uh, that I could list. The bottom line here is that anything can become an idol in our life. But these are the values that I most often misprioritize. And the first one is the idol of pleasure. And this is a tricky one, right? Because pleasure is a beautiful and necessary part of our life. God wants us to live full and joyful lives. He, he says in John 10, 10, for I've come to give them life and life abundantly. He wants us to live a full and joyful life. But usually how it works for me, I find it difficult to enjoy life unless it's enjoyable. And that's when it becomes an idol, when I need enjoyment in order to be joyful. The famous psychologist, Sigmund Freud, he argued that the meaning of life is pleasure, that all this life is for is just for pleasure. And he crafted a theory that human consciousness is made up of three components, the id, the ego, and the superego. And it's in the id that our human desire for pleasure originates. And it's not just pleasure, but all desire. It's this component that informs us of our needs. The desire for food, water, safety, sex, all derives from the id. And in the infancy of life, we are entirely governed by it. Right now, uh, Quinn is at this stage where she's just all over the place, right? She just crawls around everywhere, and she has no interest in sitting still or cuddling. Yeah, it's all the time. Um, which, it, which is the exact opposite of Bo. Bo was, Bo was content just observing life and watching it. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't crawl. It was just all of a sudden, he just stood up and started walking at 16 months old. Quinn is very different. She's not even nine months old yet, and she's already a wild woman. The other day, uh, Bo and Grandpa, they were wrestling on the floor, and Quinn broke out of my arms, and she crawled as fast as she could to get right in the middle of them. She wants to be included, and it's fun, and it's funny, and, in, and she's certainly making life very full right now. But for even how beautiful and fun and innocent she is, she has no idea how dangerous this world can be. And so consequently, she's hitting her head like six times a day. It's unbelievable, right? She'll do this thing where she'll pull herself up on the couch and then just blindly trust that someone will be there and just fall, just back. Like, she's like, like a trust fall. Um, she just lets go and falls backwards, and she thinks it's hilarious, right? That is until there isn't someone there to catch her. And then what was supposed to be fun turns into tears and screams. Freud would argue that this is the id that is driving that behavior. 
The id is the subconscious need to seek out pleasure and satisfaction. And to control the id, we must develop an ego. It's easy, it's easy for me to think about it this way, right? If the id is the engine, then the ego is the gas pedal. That determines how much energy the id receives in order to pursue the satisfaction that it wants. And then the superego, that is the brake pedal, right? It's the moral compass keeping the ego in check as it moves forward. The id becomes an idol when we ignore our superego and sacrifice moral consciousness for our pleasure. For me, it looks like you know, staying up until 4 a.m., playing video games with my friends in Alaska, and then wake up the next morning as an intolerant you-know-what, and then I end up taking all my exhaustion out on my kids, right? Or when I ignore a phone call from my wife because the pin's 140 yards down there, and I've got to decide between a soft 7-iron or a juiced-up 8, you know? Or when, when, I, when I need so badly to be right that I pick a fight with someone I disagree with just for the sake of intellectually jousting so that I can feel like I'm correct. Or when I tell Bo, no, I can't play hockey in the garage right now because I need to watch this 12-minute video on the fringe theory about how Malaysia Flight 337 was abducted by aliens. When I don't limit my id and my ego, I surrender to what I think I want versus what is best for me. I've turned my pleasure into an idol. Secondly, I find myself surrendering to the idols of safety and security. Over Christmas, Allie and I had a package stolen off of our front porch. Uh, the Amazonians had left a picture of their delivery on my, uh, where they had left the packages on the front porch. Two packages that were stacked on top of each other. One was the standard generic Amazon box and the other was the pa uh, uh, something in its original packaging. They just slapped a, a mailing label on it and stacked it on top of that generic box. Um, but when we got home, that brown Amazon box was nowhere to be found while the other one had just been tossed to the side. And it, it really bothered us, right? It made us feel incredibly vulnerable. And of course, uh, we had heard of it happening, but never thought that it would happen to us. So we decided to install one of those ring video doorbell cameras um, so that we can spy on our own house and make sure that our id can be satisfied by our latest Amazon purchases. And to be fair, I feel safer. I really, really do. Well, last week, I was cleaning up some leaves out of the flower bed during one of those 50-degree days that we are longing for right now. Gosh, we need them so badly. Um, and what did I find tucked behind our porch? The missing Amazon box, right? It turns out the wind had just blown the package off of the porch. We had a good laugh. Uh, but it was a great reminder of how powerful our sense of fear can be. If we let it, fear can inform every decision we make. So much so that we feel lost when we don't have anything to be scared of. Where I tend to turn my fear into an idol, uh, it seems to be most present around financial security. I want to know that at the end of my life, I will have had enough to maintain the quality of life that I expect. And instead of considering where I can give my excess wealth away, I hoard it in hopes that it will one day save me from the thing I fear the most. And that is a disappointing life. And so I surrender to the idol of security by acting like a dragon who hoards for hoarding's sake while ignoring the veteran with the cardboard sign standing outside of Goodwill. 
But fear isn't isolated to financial security or physical safety and health. Fear also becomes a powerful idol that can drastically affect our spirit. Hang on. Y'all are trying to scare people into joining the church? Yeah, but people like getting scared on Halloween anyway. Why not make them jump in the right direction? Actually, fear has been a recruiting tactic used by organized religion for centuries. When you add guilt to keep people in line, it's an extremely efficient form of crowd control. Our religion is based on love, Sheldon, not fear. So what happens when people don't follow the rules? They burn in hell. Because God loves them. Ah, uh, that's a funny one. Uh, as of July uh, 2022, there were 45,000 45, 45, separate denominations of Protestant Christianity in America. This is despite the fact that church attendance has dropped below the 50% mark for the first time in our country's history. That's not 45,000 churches. That's 45,000 unique possibilities of what church can look like. Unlike the number of active churches in America, which is decreasing at a staggering rate year after year, this number, this number of unique denominations, it's going up. Each one of these denominations exists because of an irreconcilable difference from all others in their view of what it means to believe and embody the life of faith. It feels gross just thinking about it, right? The gospel of grace, which was meant to be the ultimate form of radical inclusion, has become the gatekeeper of holy huddles. We turn religion, and by religion, what I'm meaning is our personal interpretation of truth. We turn religion into an idol. Our craving for satisfaction and meaning easily turns those interpretations of truth into idols when we segregate our own interpretation of what we understand to be absolute certainty. There are those who are in, and there are those who are out. And if those who are out don't conform to our version of the ideal, then they'll be considered a threat. And I'd like to think that I'm exempt from this form of idolatry, right? But on a much smaller scale, I'm guilty of that same cooperative effort that seeks to isolate and exclude. Maybe you've heard me or, or someone else say something like this. Wow, I just love Storyline so much. I never thought I would find a church like it. It has ruined all other churches for me, and I don't think I could ever go to another church except Storyline. Y'all, if, if we're not careful, this kind of posture, when left unchecked, can lead to our own version of exclusion. We are not exempt from turning this into a holy huddle. We can so easily believe that the only way to hear and understand the correct version of the gospel of grace is at St. Joseph High School at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. It's a very slippery slope. There's a very thin line between what we see as good and what we see as God, which leads to our fourth idol. You see, there's another way for us to interpret the term creatio ex nihilo. Out of nothing, a God arises. Like I mentioned earlier, the human id, the engine and life source of our personality, its goal is pleasure and satisfaction. So in our pursuit of that satisfaction and pleasure, we often will manufacture meaning in the form of truth that pertains most to our context. We end up creating God 
in our image so that God will serve our desire and purpose. The ancient Greek philosopher around, um, the ancient Greek philosopher Xenophanes, he once said, if horses had hands, of course they would draw the gods in the image of a horse. The id paired with the ego convinces us that our way of living is the right way of living or the only way of living, making all other ways of existing wrong. And in this causes us to shape God in our own image and likeness. And because our ego won't allow us to be wrong, our image of God will inevitably reflect ourselves. Our interpretation of who God is gets crafted into a God that votes like and prays like and eats like and works like and loves like me. God then becomes our idol. We distort and we twist God into the image that best serves our own satisfaction. We box him in and we build walls around him based on our interpretation of truth so that truth can define our meaning and satisfy our craving for satisfaction. This, of course, limits God into a convenient litmus test of right and wrong that we carry with us or hang around our neck as a defense against anything we perceive to be outside the boundaries of who we interpret God to be. We shape God into the perfect form to fill the void and to cure the meaninglessness of our lives. And then all of a sudden, there are 45,000 different gods we could try to please, and all we can do is hope that we pick the right one. Rabbi Harold Kushner writes in his book, When Everything You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough, he says, if we obey God because we're afraid of him, because we don't want to offend him, or because we're so overwhelmed by his might that we do not dare challenge him, then he has our obedience, but he does not have our love. In order to love and be loved, God has to give us room to choose, to become ourselves. He cannot monopolize all the power and leave none for us. The covenant between God and humanity has to be more than a matter of the Almighty laying down the law. It has to be an agreement freely entered into by two parties. God's goal is not to get something from us. It is to give something to us. His desire for us is to join him on the dance floor, right? He wants to be in a relationship with us. His love for us should challenge our id and our ego to seek something even more valuable than pleasure and satisfaction and securities and answers. And to accomplish this goal, God does not just fill the emptiness within us. He obliterates the void. So our pursuit is not one of meaning, but of belonging. And not just our belonging, but everyone else's belonging as well. What if instead of answers, security, pleasure, you fill in the blank? What if belonging is what gives our life meaning? And here's the interesting thing about belonging. By definition, it can't become an idol. For belonging to be belonging, we have to tear down the walls that we've constructed to protect us and that separate us from our neighbors, our friends, and our enemies. So what then does belonging ask of us? Love, right? 
When we hear thou shall have no other gods before me or do not make any idols, these are laws calling us to freedom only found when love becomes our highest value. A deep and unfaltering kind of love that recognizes the emptiness of life and instead of offering to merely fill it, love eliminates that void altogether.
Uh, I, had a, I had a seminary professor tell me once that uh, Jesus did not come teach us how to be God or even teach us what God is like. He came to teach us how to be human. He closes the gap between heaven and earth by coming on to take on the image and the likeness of the thing that he loves the most, us. Instead of asking us to try to be like God, he comes to be like us so that we can see and learn what it means to be truly human. As we connect and find belonging amongst our fellow humans, it illuminates our own humanity. Idolatry is always about doubting that God is really on our side. It's not trusting that God is a God of grace and it is the temptation to, to believe that we are on our own. Idolatry is the, the attempt to become like God, and it values our own self-preservation and security and our comfort above anything else and inspires the question, what is the right way to live? But Jesus, Jesus is asking us to value connection higher than correction. And he's asking us to value love even higher than our own life. And not only love, but to be like Jesus, to live a life without idols means we must fall in love with love. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, may we leave this house singing. May we tear down the walls that we've constructed to separate us from our own humanity. Lord, may we realize with every step that we take that we are not God and nor do we have to be. And Lord, as we, as we pursue our own belonging, as we pursue our own meaning in this world, may we realize that those around us are doing the same thing. And may we put our arms around each other and join in to the dance that you have for us. Lord, you give good gifts to your kids, and this is one of them. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks, friends. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.